Welcome to the Stockman Grass Farmer Podcast, where our mission is to help create a healthy planet and people through profitable grass-based livestock production. Grass farming is a 24-7 job and you can't always get away, so we've put together this podcast so that you can listen while you work or whatever you're doing, but always on your schedule, whenever and wherever you want. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to freebies and special offers. Join our email family and stay up to date on our happenings and like us on social media. This is the second part of Joel's interview with Temple Grandin. You can watch the video in the entirety with the link in the notes, or you can listen to part one in the podcast. All right, so so we've got we, climate climate affects optimal genetics. That's 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 a good. All right, so we can all what's the best we can all make a bullet point there. Yep. So 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 what's next? We've got we've got we've got climate effects, which can affect size. What else? Well, there's other things. I was just pulling some articles off online on fescue, and uh, some animals are more resistant to that toxicity. I was looking at a paper this morning on microbiome differences in cattle that don't get into problems with fescue. Now the problem with that, the paper that I've got out right now out of the book table that I looked up this morning is if you breed the fescue to get rid of the endophyte, it makes the fescue plant weaker. You see, it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, you know, that's a little common kind of grass. You gotta use it right or you're gonna have to So, so things work. like that, things like, let's say, fescue toxicity. Um, I went to a wonderful ranch that was on fescue and they had a lot of osprey cattle there. Uh-huh. So, so, so your, your position... Missouri, yeah. I'm not saying that you shouldn't use purebreds. I'm not saying that. But I just look at this ranch, a very, very progressive ranch, doing rotation wheel grazing like every 4 to 11 days, depending on the growth. And I saw a lot of mixtures, maybe tiny, tiny touch of Brahma, but extremely tiny. But like a mixture of different kinds of cattle out there. That were, and, and they were thriving. And they were doing really well. Yeah. And they were putting clover in with their fescue. To, uh, they're very progressive ranchers. Yeah, a lot of the fescue toxicity is um, is when you have a, a 100% strain. You don't have any diversity no, in, they, in the pasture. No, they've got clover, so, they've got diversity. Yeah, so so you're saying that, um, so we've got we've got the climate changes, we've got, we've got um, uh, feedstock or, or dietary things, some of which, um, Carry a genetic. So you're looking at you're looking yeah, at there's, overall there's some genetics. There's also something going on with the microbiome. And I just looked at this paper this morning on the hotel's computer. I managed to get the Fairfield wallpaper off of it. <laughs> I, I looked up the weather, and then then the, the uh, address box came up and went www.google.com. <laughs> and I just looked up these papers this morning. <laughs> She doesn't quit, does she? <laughs> like a little energizer. Uh, there's a little uh, wind-up switch back here. I just wind her up. Um, now, so, when you're now being a visual thinker, I'm now seeing the pink energizer bunny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said that. So, so. I'm also seeing a crazy ad from the '50s, the Timex watch, <laughs> where they strap a watch to the power of an outboard motor, and it survives. <laughs> So one of the one of the things when we look at criteria, genetic criteria, 
um, we're we're constantly thinking about if we if we um, um, could boil that down to kind of something because many many of us we're kind of new in this business you know we're just not sure what to do and I, I've heard people that I, I respect and I'd just like to get your take on it uh, as another person that I respect a lot um, if you're only gonna select for if you're gonna choose for one thing choose for longevity um, you know Kit Pharaoh yeah. Kit Pharaoh says if we had never selected a bull from a cow younger than I think he says 12 or something okay. if we never selected a bull from a cow younger than 12 we could have probably stopped 80% of our vet bills in the cattle industry. Well, it's probably a good point you could reduce that. You see, because you guess what's happened with a lot of cattle, they're just selecting for meat traits. You see, in pigs, you've got sire lines, and then you've got uh, uh, dam lines. And I remember going to Argentina 30 years ago, and I had a lot of traditional Angus and traditional Hereford there. Every piece of meat I had was tender. Then they started getting this, our bull semen. It did not improve their meat quality. You got a lot of bigger animals. And this is just stuff I found. Now that stuff I had at the airport that was tender 30 years ago from some little stand, now a lot more tougher meat. See, I don't think just taking our bull semen was the best thing for some of those ranchers to do. Right. Yeah, Alan Nation, my, one of my yeah. mentors, used to always say that there's a reason that a mouse is the size of a mouse is, yeah. and an elephant is the size of an elephant is. Because an elephant the size of a mouse wouldn't be a very successful elephant, and a mouse the size of an elephant wouldn't be a very successful mouse. And, and so he, he would talk about that in you know in size. Uh, in you size have of as far as feed, you're going to be doing. See, I've lived in in Arizona for ten years in the '70s, and the small Hereford cow that we had when we first started, she'd give you a calf every year. Wouldn't be the biggest calf, but you'd get one every year out on the desert. Well, that's that's uh, that's Kit Pharaoh's thing. He says I'd rather have I'd rather have one live uh, 50 pound calf than a tractor trailer load of dead 120 pound well, calves. Well, the other problem we're getting into now in feed yards, now they're breeding for more meat, is late stage deaths. You know, I've been in this industry for 50 years, and 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, you did not have fed cattle in a feed yard dropping dead a week before slaughter from congestive heart failure. And this used to be called high altitude sickness because you only had it like 10,000, 15,000 feet. But now you've got it down in eastern Nebraska, that's not, that's not high altitude sickness. And they have um, heart abnormalities, where the heart, instead of looking like a heart, looks like a bloated, squashy beach ball. And there is a genetic factor in that. I think it's some of it's over-selecting from meat traits. So uh, when you say over-selecting for meat traits, you're saying... So you just keep breeding them wider and wider and wider and wider football player cattle or football player chickens. Then you start to get problems. And chicken, you get kinky back where they, I think you overweight the spine and then they get a bacterial infection Okay, in the spine. yeah. You huh. get woody breast. 20 years ago, nobody knew what that was. See, what's happened with broilers, what I've seen, when I first got involved with broilers back in the mid-90s, um, uh, we have those horrible layers, horrible layers in fast-growing workers. Then they bred a leg about this big around, leg the size of my finger, real heavy leg, solved some of the uh, lameness issues. They actually got it better. And then now you're ending up with woody breast 
and uh, white striping, which is really abnormal. Because uh, you just breed the chicken wider and wider. You see, where do you stop? And the thing I've observed with uh, high-performance chickens is if you do everything right, I saw a very interesting situation with two barns. This was uh, within the last two years. Went to one six-pound broilers, and uh, one barn, everything was fine. Birds looked great. Go in the other barn, it was a mess. Downers, uh, dead birds and stuff. Yeah, just all kinds of stuff. But there was only one thing that was different between the good barn and the bad barn. The two barns were on the same farm. Same farmer, same exact feed, same hatch rate, same everything. The only difference was the source of the eggs. The breeder flock was different. And uh, they kind of got short on supply, and I heard this term spot market. Okay, spot market's never a, a nice word. And if that's where you buy your hatching eggs, that was the, that's what caused it. Just, just like you want to be careful of buying uh, buying your your gas and diesel from a spot market. Well, yeah, maybe it's gonna have water in it or some other thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 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 thing. so the hatchery, the hatchery egg, the egg, the hatchery, egg source. Hatchery was the same. Same. Yeah, but, but it was different, different, different breeder flock. Different breeder flock was a reason for one barn being good and the other barn being nasty. Fascinating. Same exact everything. Fascinating. And I saw that within the last two years. This is real, real recent. Uh huh. Let's uh, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about guard animals, predation. Okay. A lot of people here have backyard chicken flocks or you know, uh, uh, well, chicken flocks. Um, we have more than, than some, and some um, different people have. So when you're dealing with um, bears, eagles, um, you know, great horned owls, things like that, what 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 is your best uh, advice, counsel, whatever, for 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 guardian or for 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 predator protection? I'll just I'll just leave it right there. Well, predator can, protection. Dogs can be very effective. And originally when the guard dog stuff came out, they said, well, that puppy's got to live with those sheep and not be friendly to people. I almost got subpoenaed into court. This was a real mess. And the only reason they couldn't subpoena me is I was out of town. They tried to serve a subpoena on me because um, a guard dog bit a bicyclist really badly. And, uh, and this was a guard dog that had been raised totally just with the sheep. Now, there's other people now learning that what Coppinger said originally on that, you don't have to do that. You can have a guard dog, okay, you, you stay with the sheep at night, you're nice to people. You can kind of get both worlds. But this was a really serious case. Um, I'm very glad I didn't get dragged into court on it. But um, they can learn to kind of live in, in both worlds. You don't want a guard dog who's going to bite people. You want it to bite coyotes. Now then you get into the issue of wolves. Can you, can you have one that bites just bureaucrats? Well, that would be nice. That would be nice. I don't know how they definitely uh, I saw somebody with eye shades and a plastic pen protector. <laughs> okay, so... But I so, think they, so, they, can, they, they can be really effective. Uh, and it is possible that a guard dog is effective that's friendly towards people. But they always, with the animals at night, always. Always, always at night. Always at night, 
you know, as soon as dust comes, you're out there with the sheep and they learn that if you start training puppies, that yeah, you're out there with the sheep. Well, almost all guard animals are fairly nocturnal, aren't they? I mean, just by nature, by breeding, aren't they? Well, dogs, you know, yeah. use guard animals. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, they can be very effective against coyotes and things like that, but the problem is wolves. And sheep are just hors d'oeuvres for a main course of Angus steak. Uh, okay, so so you, that's dogs. What else? What other guardian? What well, other llamas, guard you know, llamas? People have used llamas, you know, and that that can work. Okay, um, one of the issues with things like llamas in a in a in a in a in a, in a chicken range. So you know you know how yeah. we do our chickens. Yeah. We got a thousand in that thing. Um, Hope you're enjoying the presentation and we'll jump right back in, but I wanted to first remind you to visit the show notes for freebies, deals, and more. While you're there, don't forget to join our email family to stay up to date on all the current events. Now back to the show. One of the issues with a llama is that is compatibility. You know, would they be effective outside the chickens if they were just close? or do you have to have them right in with the chickens? Well, llamas don't like dogs. Boy, I'll never forget, a next door neighbor had a llama, on the, and I watched a dog go in that yard, and boy, did that llama go after it. Big time. And there was a chicken house there, a small chicken house. Dog tried to get into that, and the llama was, this llama went after the dog. Uh, you know, there's a certain, when you look at behavior, there's a certain amount of behavior that's learned and a certain amount of behavior that's instinctual. Okay, let's look at fear of predators. There's a paper out in Journal Animal Science uh, that uh, showed that a lot of fear of predators is learned. You know, we've had a lot of issues with wolves. And cows that had never- Wait, wait, wait a minute, just to clarify, fear of, you mean, you mean like chicken's fear of predators? I'm talking about cattle. Cattle are cat, cattle fear of predators. Well, yes, there's been problems with in areas where there's wolves, uh -huh. with cows getting so stressed that their reproduction's dropping down 20%. And, and so, so they're actually more fearful than they need to be. Yeah, they're they're um, you know they've been harassed by wolves. Okay. And and uh, there was a very interesting uh, research study that was done. It was published in the Journal Animal Science, and they took cows that had beef cattle that had been attacked by wolves, had previous experience with wolves, beef cattle that had never been attacked with wolves, and measured their stress, where they used German shepherds as stand-in for wolves, wolf urine and, and audio tape wolf howls, and the cattle that had been exposed to the actual predation, they got a gigantic stress response, and the other cattle kind of just, like, nothing. Yeah, Ronaldo Cook did that yeah. paper. So, so here again, you're advocating. Um, yeah, because I mean, I've no, I'm not this. advocating anything. I'm just telling you to study. <laughs> and and uh, fortunately, where you live, you don't have to deal with wolves. No, we don't have to deal with wolves. Thank goodness. You we deal with the we have a lot of bears. A lot of bears. Bears are just everywhere now because yeah. nobody's hunting them you know yeah. because that's fallen out of favor that's yeah. not that's not politically correct anymore because you know the the the, the son the, the sons that used to go with dad to, to, well, to, to problem, hunt bears are in the basement playing video well, games that's part of the problem the other problem is is bears learn for years 
I can remember in the 60s, you could drive through Yellowstone Park in a car and the bears would come up and they never tried to break into a car. And then one day, bears learned that they could break the windows of cars. And once they learn that kind of stuff, they teach the others. They don't unlearn it. It's kind of the hundreds monkey thing. The yeah. hundreds monkey. Um, then they, they they've learned they, tip they can over. tear the doors off of houses. It's like cardboard. See, for a long time, they didn't know that they had the power to do stuff like that. Yeah. So okay. So we've got dogs. We've got we've got llamas. Um, what else? Are there any other guardian animals that you're familiar with? Well, those are the main ones. Yeah. Well, we we've used geese. We've used geese with, with chickens, okay. and, and um, you'll, you'll appreciate this. What we found is that about, um, this is not scientific, there's no paper, but, but about, about one in five geese has the temperament to be a guard animal. Well, you see, that's genetic differences. You know, there's genetic differences in aggression. Okay, between uh, bold, know, boldness and timidity. Yeah, that's right. There's differences, genetic differences. You know, I showed you those foxes. And the uh, you had the snarly, just regular fur farm farm dogs take your hand off. They've read real gentle ones that will lick your hand, but they turned into like border collie-like dogs. But they also the student of Belly F uh, selected a, a line of real nasty foxes that were worse than the original. So traits like aggression, there's a heritable component there. But then also the exploration trait. For example, some cattle are going to go out and graze a lot of pasture. This was studied that studied down at New Mexico State University with GPS collars on Angus cattle. And some Angus cattle would go out and graze lots and lots of pasture. And other Angus cattle just laid around the water hole. And this was a genetic difference in the seek trait, the exploration trait. That is so fascinating because, you know, we run these eggmobiles. And what we see are, are um, chickens, you know, I, I open the door in the morning, move it, you know, behind the cows, open the door and there are chickens that are always waiting at the door, ready to run out. Yeah. And then when I get the water set up and go around and open the nest boxes, there's always another group that never went out. They're just, and, and, and that's, so you- That's differences so, in the baby. That's yeah, yeah. Because they're in exactly the same environment and there are genetic differences yeah, so, in the So, so what, what we have, we go gather the eggs and you've got eggs that are almost like orange yolk, you know, a really nice vibrant colored yeah. orange yolk. And then you've got yolks that are pale. Um, and, and those are the birds that didn't go out and eat grass no, and bugs and, they and all that. The, they just the, eat the, the commercial feed. They're just eating the commercial feed. they're too feed. lazy to go outside. So, so, <laughs> too lazy. So, yeah, uh, we, we, call them, we call them welfare chickens. So, <laughs> so, so my question to you is, if, if you were me and I, and I want chickens that when I, when I go in, when I go in to let down well, the nest box, select for that trait of the ones that go outside. But I want to warn you. Let's say you select for that trait too much. There'll be something linked to that would be a nasty surprise. If you overselect for any single trait, sometimes bad things can happen. Like who would have ever? That's agreed? a warning for all of us, isn't it? I mean, you know who. What, what could be worse than having a chicken that wants to go eat bugs? Yeah. But you're saying if but that's the only thing you're selecting for, maybe, like yolk color maybe, and- And maybe she won't have as many eggs. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Okay. See, I don't know, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Right, oh, that is such a, that that's, is, that is that's profound. always a price. I like to look at genetic selection sort of like a national economy. Everything takes energy. 
So if I put everything into, let's say, lots of eggs, or meat, or, or milk, then I shortchanged Rebro. Let's look at the modern dairy cattle. She can't hardly breed her. Right. There's leg problems and cattle selected for meat. Same thing with pigs. But then the other thing is resistance to disease. That also takes energy. So people go, oh, we're going to use genetic engineering and we're going to just override the whole thing. Let's say you did that. You're going to need a feed IV to feed that animal. Because everything takes energy. Nothing's free. So you're saying even my idea of let's, let's just take old, take Kit Pharaoh's idea, let's just take old, um, if, that's, if that's how we make the choice, we might get to a point where production, production is so poor they don't pay the feed bill. For well, example. that's the problem. You see, what's the balance between productivity and robustness, right. basically? You mm -hmm. see, that is the kind of trade-off. And I think a lot of breeder older, when you think about all the animals, we have all the different kinds of dogs, different kinds of chickens, different kinds of cattle, that were all bred before anybody knew anything about genetics. And, and I think that, you know, the visual thinker kind of just looks at, you know, they see that. But I've looked at genetics textbooks and it's all math. There isn't a single picture of an animal in the book. It's all probabilities and e EPGs. Um, well, that's one of the reasons why so many breeds carry geographical names, isn't it? Because because that's what worked in that area. Well, you know, Angus Gersey, cattle, Angus. Hereford cattle, those yeah. were geographical names. Right, right. <clears throat> we'll switch, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. We're, we're doing okay. we got about 20, 20 minutes. Okay, all right. Is, let me ask you... Um, I'm just I'm just having more fun than a than any than, than anybody should be able to have up here. I mean this is this is like Oh and then of course this we're, is gonna gold. we're gonna sell books afterwards. Yeah. So this is our books are right out there. Oh. Yeah, we got we both got books to sell. Greedy greedy capitalists here. Yeah. Yeah. Well the thing is you wanna get information out there. You wanna do the same thing with I, Absolutely, sure do, sure yeah. do. <laughs> So, um, is it okay if we kind of just finish the continue this, or does it, somebody have burning questions that you're that we're not? Are we okay to just continue this thread right on through? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I've got a couple kind of practical um, production questions, like pigs. Do people people get? really on their high horse about certain things like a chicken needs a roost well you know i found out that a lot of chickens don't roost okay let me tell you about broilers okay uh, regular perches don't work very well for broilers right. uh, but what works well for broilers is like little ramp things this is for indoor broilers little ramps so they can climb up on and, and hide under but a regular perch they don't use them the birds too heavy but they like stuff to climb they, they want they want things to climb up on at night and things to hide under because this is an animal that when uh, it lived in the wild uh, it would want to hide from the hawks and from the predators there's been some interesting stuff done in what they call choice lighting where you light up the feed line they're really bright and then the birds like to hang around in the shadows also for your outdoor chickens you got to have enough uh, little shrubs and things 
so that they can always go and find a, a shelter. But for broilers, just regular purchase don't actually work very well. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right, so broilers are one thing. So we got we got layers now, layers are more active. Yeah, and layers okay. are gonna use purchase. Yeah, so, um, so, in, so again, I've got my backyard flock here. What is the what is the minimal? I love this. Um, so they want they want a place to go that's high. They yep. want a place to go that's that, that they can hide. They like uh, to hide. What, what's the minimal kind of infrastructure to allow the chicken to express her chickens? Well, can the chicken all the chickens at night perch up high? Is there room for them to do that? That that's kind of a really basic minimum. Could all the birds at night perch up high where they like to perch? I saw a weirdest thing one time. I went you know, uh, university research farm and there was a gap between the top of the part of the facility and the ceiling and birds were wedging themselves in that because they could get up higher and it was not very comfortable for them they like to sleep high and then have places to hide during the daytime but I would say you need to have enough purchase so at night everybody's got a place high to perch on okay you any you other put, you put a resource in you want to have enough of it so that everybody can you have it okay. otherwise you get fights right right uh so the so the so the, the timid ones need a place to be able to go and get away the yep. others need their need their elevation so on our place we have these thousand bird things there's they can all perch but some of them don't so some of them just clump up in a in a huddle on the ground and well there's differences in the behavior you see this is you get biological it's like democrats and republicans well or it's something. like biological variation but, uh -huh. you've got differences in behavior that's fascinating so so now the birds so, that, so, so no, we're, let's say the point is we don't need to train the birds that are sleeping on the ground we don't need to go and train them to go on a, if, they're, if they're happy there they're happy there yeah you see and the thing is you've got no selection pressure to see if there were predators out there a fox would eat those oh, chickens. Oh yeah, absolutely. Eat those chickens right up. Absolutely. So in the wild, those birds would last. They're in a protected situation. They don't have to go up high. Right. Okay. All right. That's that's fair enough. How about another similar item is wallows for pigs? Do well. I, when I was doing my PhD research, I had some indoor pigs that lived on plastic floor. We took them out on the grass next to the cornfield, this little mud hole, and uh, my pigs went right in that, knew exactly what to do in that. So, this even, though they, even though they've never seen never a, a seen mud before. hole before. Never seen it before. And it was in there flopping around, and I didn't know there was a mud hole there. We just let them out on the grass, and there was a mud hole. And the pigs found it. They found it. <laughs> now, there was some, I remember reading something about minks, that if a mink, they like to go in water has experienced going in water. They really get stressed out when they don't have it. Now, if they've never found out how much wonderful that is, they're less stressed out. Okay, so so if a pig, that, okay, so that's the interesting nuance here. Yeah. So if, one of the problems with wallows, they're you know, a mess. In, in a, yeah, disease. They're a mess. But yeah. now, but now the pigs don't—they don't defecate in their wallow usually. Is, do you? But that, what I found in defecation patterns, every once in a while, like on an indoor farm, you get a pen of slobs, right? And they just crap all over everything, where most of the other pens do it in one corner. Yeah, our, our pigs—we always feel like they—they kind of select. The, they're kind of fastidious. Well, they are. They tend they, not. They, they tend they, to select. They spot. tend to just poop in one spot. But then every once in a while, you get some slobs that that don't do that. 
Huh? Just, um, yeah, okay. Flop. Well, you see, the pigs that, the chickens that just huddle on the floor, yeah. those wouldn't live very long in the wild. Fox gonna right. eat them right up. That's right. That's right. So, so uh, in an outdoor setting, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using, I'm using my, um, my privilege here of, of being with you to find out some stuff for me. We, we've been accused. We don't always give them, give the pigs a wallow in their outdoor, but they have shade. They have green material. They have place to run. Um, the problem with managing wallows is just such a mess. Yeah. And the other thing I've seen with some of these uh, pig outdoor things, they uh, overgraze the pasture and it's turned into moonscape. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget a train ride I did in the UK where I got to see the backside of some of those farms. It was a moonscape. Yeah. There wasn't one blade of grass on the, on the place. The pigs had just trashed it. Yeah, I had a guy uh, call me from uh, Arkansas and um, he, was, he was selling pigs to uh, New York chefs. This is when, remember a few years ago, about seven or eight years ago, um, the, the, the culinary world was, a, um, you know, going nuts over Berkshire pigs. Yes, Berkshire, remember know. that? All the chefs, Berkshire pigs. So this guy, this guy had Berkshire pigs, and he, he called me, this was February, all right, yeah, February, he okay. calls me, says, I'm going to talk about this, you know, this uh, pastured pig thing. I said, okay, so how many pigs do you have? He said, uh, he said I've, got about, uh, I've got about 300 out there. I said, oh, how, how big of area? Oh, they're in about an acre and a half. I said, oh. I said uh, now this is February. I said, so how long have they been there? Well, they've been there for about three months. And I said, well, you have a, you have a moonscape mud hole. He said, oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> he said, it's, it's an ecological disaster, but... They're Berkshires, and the New York chefs don't care as long as they're Berkshires. Well, this gets into welfare auditing. And I get asked lots of times, what are some of the things I've done I'm the most proud of? And working on welfare auditing programs. And I started out with the slaughter plants. We measured five simple things. Never hang dead one, live cattle on the rail, stunning efficacy, slips and falls, vocalization during handling, and electric pride abuse. And then no acts of abuse. By measuring these very simple things, we really greatly improve slaughter plants. And it's amazing what very simple improvements would do, like a non-slip flooring, unloading, stun box. Lighting can make a difference. But I'm learning now new things about LED lights. I just was out at a plant, and we put a big fat LED light on the entrance of the chute, and it didn't work. And I think the reason for that is LED lights, some of them flicker. And cattle can see flicker. And here's a way you can... Even, even though you can't see no. it. No, you know how you can figure out which lights flicker? Take a phone and film the light in slow motion photography. Play it back in slow motion, and you can see the flicker. But I looked up some uh, literature, scientific literature. Dogs and cats definitely see flicker. Nobody's tested cattle. But you're getting like some kind of weird problems with LED lights. And it may be flicker. Because all my other research used old-fashioned hot incandescent bulbs right. with a hot filament. Those do not flicker. Huh. And so that can have effects on a lot of folks. but a lot of simple changes, like moving smaller groups. And then when you had a big buyer auditing, I saw more improvement than you'd ever seen. And out of 70, this was McDonald's supplier list, 75 big plants on the improved supplier list, only three had to do expensive modifications. All the rest we, we fixed with simple things and also three managerectomies, but they, they, uh, 
buyers have got to audit their stuff. And the New York chef needs to get out of the office. And I have to say, I was with a client the other day who saw organic, skinny, horrible looking old dairy cows going into a plant. Saw these awful wagyu. We had a little undercover boss moment there. These were organic Holstein dairy cows. They were bone racks. Cert certified sold certified organic. Mm -hmm. Sold at an auction. And this is very, very recent. This is now. Well, some of this stuff they think is good's not good. Mm -hmm. These cows were horrible. Right, right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a go to a spot that um, that's probably as 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 tight as I'm gonna uh, push here a little bit. So animal welfare standards, you know, that, on, yeah. on chickens. Um, as you know, we we have promoted the the kill cone, which we say is like the the box, you know, the the squeeze, yeah. the squeeze. Um, and basically do a halal kosher kit uh, without ex electrocution and without you know suffocation like the like the animal welfare people want. Um, what's your what are your thoughts on that? Well, with chicken is not much data. I've done a lot of work with um, with a kosher slaughter of cat, and I had an observation I made in 1994 where yeah you have you do it absolutely right with a special long knife that they use. Cow didn't hit a period a period of field but now there's research coming out saying it hurts but they use a different kind of knife now the thing I've observed with and I'm talking here cattle and sheep and these kind of animals slaughter without stunning as it's called in the UK all I can say is that particular plant we made that observation a custom designed box I designed had custom built I ran the box I had the handling totally under control we had the best rabbi in the industry they didn't feel appear to feel it but the instant you get sloppy, it goes bad fast. And you've got live cattle running around with their throats cut. And every time, I just yesterday we were out on the road and I saw these big metal toolboxes that, that you, like the contractors use, like a connect box or a job box. Every time I see one of those things, I see a steer that got loose after kosher slaughter, walked outside and bled into one of the open toolbox. Oh, absolutely horrible. See, the problem is, is to do slaughter without stunning with a decent level of welfare requires doing it perfect, and most plants aren't capable of that. Mm. But, 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 but on, a, on, a, on a small scale where you're not in a hurry. Yeah, you need to use an extremely sharp knife. Extremely sharp knife. And a simple knife. way to, to um, let's give me a, tear off a blank sheet of paper there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just tear that off. You take, you just use printer paper. If you take a piece of paper, it's just printer paper when you should and you hold it by the corner like this and the knife is dry you should be able to okay that's that's the that's the definition of a sharp knife hold the paper and you can take it hold it by the corner, the corner and the knife dry it has to be dry dry you should be able to slice right down just holding it by the corner okay that, and use just regular printer paper uh-huh that uh, would be a sharp knife i'm but what I found so your, cattle, your tool your tool has to be right yep. and your technique has that's to be right. right that's right okay and I think there's less issues with chickens than there is with a large animal like cattle because I've seen also you have to have the controls right on the box or you can't control the pressure put on the animal a lot of them the valves are set up wrong and now you're squashing your animal and it's bellowing because you're squashing it that's not okay 
So I'll, I stand behind that observation on this published in 1994, but it was done under perfect conditions, mm -hmm. which most people are not capable of. <laughs> well, back to this morning, you were talking about you, you the, the the single the single mistake or um, one mistake you made. I'm not going to say you only made one mistake, um, but but one mistake you said that you made was was assuming that you could make. A, a management system or, or a, I a, a handling system. I thought I could make a self-managing handling self system. Managing that's rubbish. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've learned a lot. This old lady's learned some things. And that one of the mistakes made in engineering, and this happens in many fields, is they think they can use engineering to solve all the management problems. It's not. Yeah. Work. Yeah. So as we as we wind this down and, and come to conclusion. Um, I want to I want to just uh, uh, give you whatever the freedom, the encouragement, the platform. Um, so I'm going to ask a question that if if you if you were uh, tomorrow named Secretary of Education for the United States, um, what would you do in the schools, the curriculum? Just just let your what what well, what, 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 what would what I've would what about would that we, all the time. I'd put all the hands-on classes back in that we had in the 50s. One of the biggest mistakes that we made was taking out the shop classes, the cooking classes, sewing classes. And we're losing, our visual thinkers are getting screened out by all the mathematics requirements. I know there's a car factory somewhere around here because I saw a sign for an exit. That plant manager is probably yanking his hair out right now because he can't get visual thinkers to fix their equipment. And I just was out at the plant the other day. We were trying to you know, figure out how to fix some equipment. I wanted a simple little hydraulic thing built. Should have been able to be done in-house. I don't think their shop can do it. See, the problem is, is the visual thinkers that can just make mechanical things and we're tiring out. And there's a big issue with skill loss. The state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine comes from Holland even though we invented it. Because they have kept the shop classes. And you kind of go more technical route. Well, they, have a, they have an apprentice program. That's Germany, right. Germany has an apprentice That's program. That's the reason why the machine that makes the N95 mask fabric is, I think it's from Germany. The glass walls on the Steve Jobs Theater are from Italy and Germany. Um, I've, you know, and this part of the stuff is in my new book on visual thinking. Um, uh, there's companies that just do logistics, supply chain management stuff. A lot of those are based in Europe because we've stuck our nose up at skilled trade stuff and we're starting to pay for it now, big time. And it's something I'm very concerned about because the kids now, we need to fix things and invent things are playing video games in the basement when they ought to be over there at that car factory and keeping it running. You see, there is a relationship here. And this is something I'm, okay, the age I'm at now, I'm very, very interested in, in talking about this. But I, I can't do algebra, I never have passed algebra. But I went to school 60 years ago when the math requirements were not as stringent. But we are losing skills. Another thing I want to talk about, talk about before we finish up is little guys innovate. And I think I mentioned this morning, it's something like probiotics for poultry. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the poultry industry stuck their nose up at that. And then at the poultry show, just before COVID shut it down, now the 
they're, they're doing probiotics. So things that we develop here with regenerative agriculture can get picked up by big agriculture. This brings up one final thought. Five years ago, I was teaching my class right after we had a flood, and I had to like go way around the flood to get home from the airport. I go, big is not bad, it's fragile. This is the problem. If you have a concentrated supply chain, I don't care if it's chips, baby formula, single plant went down, and the shelves were stripped. You see, this is an example of big is, is fragile. And it gives you economy, you can do it cheaply, you can do it quality up. When you break it, it's bad. You have a more distributed supply chain, it's more expensive, but if you break it, it doesn't fall apart. Yeah, so, if, if in 2020, instead of having 150, 5,000 person centralized processing facilities, if we had had 150,000, 20 to 50 employee, yep. you know, neighborhood based processing facilities, you know, canneries, uh, slaughterhouses, cheese factories, whatever. Think of how we could have written out 2020 much better. Well, let's look at the messes. We had two big plants shut down, 300,000 head of pigs had to be destroyed on the farm in the upper Midwest. That was a gigantic mess. That was just uh, horrible. And the thing is, a small operator can't compete head to head with big. You have to be in a niche. And I think a good model is our beer industry where I live in Fort Collins. We've got a big Budweiser plant and all the little craft breweries. And they're, they're coexisting because they don't directly compete. I want to end up with the thing I observed that I read about in plants. You take a primitive plant, the ginkgo, this has straight veins like this. If you rip the leaf, there's no alternate route for water and nutrients. You take a more modern plant, there's a more convoluted root. So if I tear the leaf, there's another route for nutrients. Well, the plant evolution went towards the more distributed supply chain. And so the ginkgo uh, is, is now an anomaly in the plant kingdom as rather than the, 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 the other. Total anomaly. I've got a paper online on uh, COVID-19 and the pork industry and welfare issues and that ginkgo study is in that. It's a free access paper. But the problem is big is fragile and baby formula, single plant, and I don't know why it's been down for three months. I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, but, so, the, but the shelves are still stripped. Check, check yeah, so so Buck, Buckminster Fuller had something going yeah. when, he, when he wrote the book Small is Beautiful uh, back uh, when, when he talked about it. You know, uh, Harvard Business Review did a, a fascinating article um, comparing commodities with craft, commodities and craft, and what they what they deduced was we talked about this before yeah. before we got up here was that um, that. Both both sides, commodity and craft, can both be profitable yes, and viable can. businesses. Yes, they can. But but what you can't do is if you're in the commodity business, you can't cross over and try to be a craft. Doesn't work. And if, and if you're in a craft business, you can't cross over and try to be a commodity. No, you can't. You, you have to stay roll. within your you, within that, your uh, uh, realm because because they have totally different. Commodity is all about uh, homogeneity, low margins, yes. least cost producer. Craft is all about differentiation, That's high right. margins, That's right. you know, all That's those right. kinds of things. And so, when you break big, it's a mess. And uh, electronic chips, uh, uh, Brad rented a really nice vehicle, you know, for you know, doing the books, and it has the thing where you can get the bird's eye view of the vehicle for backing up and stuff. They're only putting that in high-end cars right now. 
because they can't get the chips for that feature. It's going on right now. And why am I following the chip and the electronics industry? Because there's parallels here. There are parallels. There's one big chip plan. If it goes down, it is going to be not pretty. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so, so this whole centralization, so part of this entire homesteading tsunami is all about decentralizing right. and democratizing access to information, production, processing, distribution, all those kinds of things. Well, so we're all now, part now, of really it. I really also just want to finish up. We're going to have to finish up yeah. and then we'll be out in our book yeah. tables. Yeah. But I'm seeing a lot of young people here and I think that's really good. Yeah. And I think now the right. 75 this summer thing that I want to do is encourage young people to get out and do innovative things, get into great careers where you can do something that makes a positive difference. And the other thing that you want to learn, let's stop throwing rocks at big. That doesn't really do you any good. Yeah. I learned a long time ago, sell your own product. Sell your own product and don't throw rocks at and the other guys. And don't throw rocks at the other guy. That's, that's really, really counterproductive. Folks? Temple Grandin, a U.S. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. Well, check out the episode notes. And always remember the advice from cows and be outstanding in your field. See you next time. Thank you.